Good morning. What a great day this is. Exciting times around here at Desert Breeze. We just finished up uh, one of our most successful years in the history of our church, 2014, and we're expecting 2015 to be even a better year than ever. Yes, yes, praise God. Praise God. Dare you to move. 2.5, this is part two of a five-part series, Growing. Uh, take a look at your notes. Top, here's our theme verse, 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support for God to show his power to those whose heart is blameless, not sinless, but fully devoted to him. I love that verse. This is not about overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying a hold of his willingness. If you had any idea what he thinks, feels about you and what he wants to do in your life, oh my goodness, you would run to him. That's what that verse is about. He wants to show his power in our behalf as we become more fully devoted to him. Next thought on your notes there, dare you to move to a life that is fully devoted to Jesus Christ. John 10.10 is another big theme verse. It's the theme verse of our church. Second Chronicles 69 is the theme verse of this series. So when we started Desert Breeze um, in, in our home, in our living room, this is the underlying conviction. Quite a number of years ago, well over 20 years ago, whatever the capacity for human sin and suffering, the church has a greater capacity through the gospel for healing and wholeness. I'm more convinced of that today than ever before. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that's the message that we have been given. And uh, so here's our campaign purpose, to inspire DB family to be more fully devoted to Christ and taking steps of faith in our 5G discipleship process. We have a discipleship process and uh, I'm teaching a class, Game of Life, just kicked it off this last week. You can still be a part of this class. It's on Tuesday night, 6.30 to 8.30 for eight weeks. You missed the first week, so there's seven weeks to go, but you can still get involved in this class. And I take you through in more detail on what we're covering here on our weekend services, the 5G process. Genuine, growing, giving, going, glorifying Christian, and uh, what that means. Uh, next purpose for this campaign is together raising money for the purpose of development and enhancement of our church home to its fullest capacity to better reach seekers and build believers to full devotion to Christ. I don't know if you've noticed this lately, but we're busting at the seams and we've hit our lid. We don't have uh, any more room, although we've been trying to get people to, to switch over to Saturday night and Saturday night is filling up and we're, it's pretty amazing. And so uh, we're looking at how can we expand our current location and God's done some amazing things and so that's what that is about. I'm going to invite uh, our executive pastor Scott Famelli up here once again and have him explain a little bit more uh, about the campaign before we uh, dive into our Bible study. All right. You know a lot of times when you do something really big like this like a campaign people have lots of questions and sometimes people don't ask the questions and they just go unanswered so we want to answer some questions that are probably top of mind for people be a little bit more explanatory about our process and what our intentions are and also give opportunity that if you have other questions that aren't answered that you know how to do that and so let me just go through a few things that are going to be really important for you to know because uh, we want to be all in this together and be of the same mind in this so first of all um, we own half of this building. We own 36,000 square feet of this building. Uh, right now, we have four ten or three tenants, but also one unoccupied space. 
that represents about 15,000 square feet. And so when we do our next area of, of expansion, we are going to newly develop that 15,000 square feet, but we're gonna redevelop all 36,000 square feet. So that's gonna take some doing and some planning and some you know, shuffling and things like that. It'll be uh, fun to do it together. Um, but also, uh, you just need to know that. And so that's one of, one of the things we want you to know. Also, you need to know that our goal is to raise 1.5 million and we have a $240,000 head start. So praise God for that. And the reason why we have a head start is two, twofold is that we started the 2.0 Dare You to Move campaign a couple of years ago. And so there were some people that made some uh, commitments back then. And um, now that we've entered into the 2.5 uh, phase, uh, those people that made those commitments have made up some of that $240,000, but we've also been able to save money as a church to add to that. And so uh, in total, it equals about $240,000. And so we want you to know that we appreciate those commitments that have come in before. Uh, and also as a church that we're not asking uh, our church members to do anything that the church as a whole body is not willing to do as well. And so Here's how it's gonna work out moving forward. If you made a 2.0 commitment prior to this drive, which is 2.5, thank you very much, and please restate your commitment on a new commitment card so that we can have one accurate list of commitments. This is the commitment card. You're gonna see these in your bulletins every few weeks. Some people have turned them in already. Um, I'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but if you already made a commitment in the, a couple of years ago, we just want you to restate it on this card. And the reason for that is we need to, first of all, have accurate records. It's easier to take, keep track of one list than two. Uh, but there's also people that made those past commitments that don't go to our church anymore. So if we just combine them together, we're not going to have accurate records. And it's important for us to have accurate records to not only know what our commitments are, but our bank is going to look at that also. And I'll tell you about that in just a second. Um, so as far as the commitments go, we'll be making an official call for our commitment cards the last week of this series, which will be the first week of uh, February, and ask that all commitment cards be turned in by March 1st. So you might be asking, why are you waiting so long? Well, we're doing a really intentional teaching series here, and we want you to hear every word, and we want you to be moved by every single testimonial video that you see. But what we don't want is for you to make an emotional decision. Uh, and we don't want you to uh, make a uh, decision by reason. Uh, we made these great brochures, uh, and it's not a marketing piece. It's not to sell you. This is a tool for you that explains some steps that we encourage you to take in a process of getting with God and living out that theme verse for God to know that you have a heart fully devoted to Him and that you're wanting Him to use His power in your behalf to accomplish this God-sized task here at Desert Breeze, not only individually, but collectively. Uh, making a decision emotionally isn't what we want you to do, or by reason, like I, I stayed in a Holiday Inn Express last night, I got this. We don't want you to make that kind of decision. Uh, it's gotta be up to God, because it's a God-sized task, and, and we want you to get, to get with Him in doing that. So um, again, our commitments will be considered by our banker in financing our next phase of improvements, and I want you to know that because it's not just you know, Ray and me and the Board of Elders going to the bank and saying, hey, we need money to build. Um, it's them knowing that there's a body of believers that are all fired up about what God is doing, and we are collectively buying in 
to what uh, we think God is going to be up to here. And uh, that's how we want to present that to the bank. So that's important to know. Um, here's another thing. We are not trying to raise the full amount by the time we begin building out because we want to be realistic about the capacity of our gift givers to make contributions to the building campaign over and above their regular giving. It's important for you to know that these commitments are over and above your regular giving. We won't do very well as a church if you stop giving to the church and start giving to the campaign, because then we'll have to fire Ray, and, <laughs> and we'll have a building but no head pastor. And so this is an over and above thing. This is a God-sized thing, and so we need to continue what we're doing each and every week here at Desert Breeze, and that happens through your regular and consistent giving, and we're so thankful for that. Um, and so it's important for you to know that as well. And so we stretched it out for three years, knowing that, you know, we could probably press and beat the sheep and raise the 1.5 within a year, but we don't want to do that. We understand that we all have a financial capacity. So let's stretch it out. We're going to be here for a long time. Okay? Uh, the next thing is, is all of our tenants will be moving out by December 31st of this year, and we hope to begin our next improvements as close to January 1st, 2016 as we can. So the, for this year, we're finishing designs, we're uh, looking at construction costs, we're, we're getting permits, we're getting financing, and as soon as all of our tenants move out, we wanna be moving out of here. <coughs> Excuse me. And the uh, last couple of things is the improvements will be done in stages to minimize the impact on weekend services. And if you have further questions, you can just email me at that email address. Okay? Good stuff. That's it. Thanks, God. Let's give him a hand. And, and one last thing before we pray. Uh, this is for members only. This is for those that call this their church home. If you're new with us, we welcome you, and uh, we want to get to know you. We want you to get to know us. We want to earn your trust over time. So we hope that we can do that. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2 is our text. We'll be looking at verses 12 and 13. And uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll look at this uh, text and many others, many other verses, and unpack these notes. Let's pray. God, we are, we are delighted to be here today. We, we love your presence. We love spending time with you. There's nothing we enjoy more than interacting with you, knowing you, and having you speak to us, and and us spending time adoring you and enjoying all that you have for us. Father God, you, you sent your son, Jesus, to rescue us from peril and give us eternal life. And you are building your church, and you are building this church, Desert Breeze, and the gates of hell won't prevail. You promised us that in Matthew 16, 18. So we pray that we would be people who are radically devoted to Christ relentlessly passionate to grow in Christ, irrevocably committed to serving one another for Christ, contagiously dedicated to reaching those outside of Christ, motivated by the glory of Christ, as we experience more and more of an unleashing of your power in and through our lives, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. Oh, before we read the text, let me bring you up to speed. Fullness of life, full devotion to Christ, or one in the same pursuit, John 10.10. 10. I discovered that a number of years ago, and it was just, it was an amazing discovery. It's always been there. I just didn't know about it, that God's glory and my satisfaction are one in the same pursuit. 
You want to find satisfaction in life? You want to live life to its fullest? It's in full devotion to Christ. It's by living your life for His glory. And that's the idea. And we talked about it last week, this 5G process. First G, a genuine Christian is committed to Christ and to a church family. I would encourage you, if you weren't here, to download the message, listen to it, or get the app. Uh, a lot of people think they're Christians, and they don't really understand what it means to be committed to Christ or a church family. I talk about that in that teaching. And this weekend, we're talking about the second G, G2, growing Christian, is committed to the disciplines necessary for spiritual growth. Here's what I'm up to. In this whole series, and in fact, every weekend, I want to work with you for your indescribable and indestructible joy. There is an indescribable joy found in Jesus. You can't even put it to words. And indestructible, no people, thing, or circumstance can take it away from you. That's my job. That's what I want to do. And I want to work with you for your joy, even as Paul says to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 1.24. And that's what this whole series is about, and particularly as it relates to how the gospel changes us. That's the question we're, we're answering. Now, it's taken me a decade or two to, to really apply the truths that I'm about to share with you this morning, and they, these truths have been revolutionary for me. Uh, there were times in my life that I, I hit these stuck points, stuck points uh, in my marriage, finances, personal life. You guys know what stuck points are? Where it almost seems like I, I keep going around the same mountain over and over again. I can't get out of this bog, this mud, and, and, I, and I'm a Christian, and yet why am I struggling with these things in my life? Why is this such a struggle? The truths that I'm about to share with you help me to get through that, and I'm continuing to apply these truths to our lives. It's, it's certainly revolutionary. There's a lot here. You're going to have to go back through this message again and really listen to it slowly and take a lot of notes, and this is a lot of stuff you've heard me through the years if you've hung out with us talk a lot about this stuff, but uh, it's very critical for life change. Uh, this is how our hearts change. This is how the gospel changes our lives. Once we're a believer in Christ and we're following him, we're walking with him, this is the change that he brings to our lives. Now let me read Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Keep in mind, Paul is writing this to the church that's in Philippi, and he's, uh, he's chained to a praetorian guard. He's in prison, and yet the, the letter is filled with joy. Amazing joy. And one of the many things that he says here is right here. He's talking really about applying the gospel, and he says, therefore, so he just talked about the gospel, about the incarnation, humiliation, and, and magnification, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Jesus coming to this earth, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I'm sure you're probably familiar with that text. And so then he goes in that context. He says, therefore, my beloved, term of endearment, I love you guys, and I want you to get this, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. What is he saying there? He's saying, hey, live a life of integrity, not just because the apostle Paul is with you and now you're, you're trying to clean up your act and try to get things together. No, he says, whether I'm there or not there, you should be living a life of obedience to God, not because I'm there or not there, but because you're living for an audience of one. You're living a life of integrity. See, integrity is who you are when no one's watching. It's, it really has to do with that, that there's a consistency, there's, there's an integration, that's what the word integrity means, there's a consistency between your, your public life and your private life. 
And so you're not, you're not game playing, you're not wearing masks. Who you are is who you are. That's what he's wanting to get at. So this is, goes much deeper than, yeah, you're a good person when you're hanging out with people and they're watching you, but are you a good person when nobody's watching behind the scenes? That's the idea here. And so he's going to tell us, well, how do we get that? How do we, what should motivate that? Well, he says right here, so work out your salvation. So stop there just for a minute once again. He's not saying work for it. He's talking about people who have salvation. So now we have salvation. How do we work it out? How? With fear and trembling. Then he talks about it, for it is God who works in you. So the first part of salvation, he works for us on the cross we're brought into his family, and now we have his Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and now he's working in us both to will, giving us the desires, changing our desires, and then giving us the ability for his good pleasure, to live for his good pleasure, to put him on display. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So really profound, very significant verses here. So let me walk you through this. Now, I didn't put this on your notes, but you need to know that uh, this, these are kind of divided up into sections, and the first three points that I'm going to make here have to do with the message, the grace of God. You've got to get the message down. You've got to understand the, the message if you're going to be transformed by the message. So the first three deal with the message, the grace of God. The next two deal with our motives. So not only do we need to know the message, but we need to know the motive. What motivates this life change, this obedience? And, and that's the next two, four and five, and then six and seven have to do with what is the mark that we're aiming at? That's the glory of God. And then the last, number eight, the last one there is the means, spiritual disciplines. How do we continue to, to grow, increase our capacity for what we're talking about here? So let's talk about, here's the first one. Number one, the gospel is not the ABCs of salvation, but the A to Z. That's your first fill in the blank. Notice what he says in verse 12. Work out your salvation. So you got salvation, now you need to work it out in every area of your life. You know those stuck points that I talked about? You got some stuck points? I'm sure you do. You're not perfect, you don't have it all together. So you got some stuck points. Hang out with me and I'll point them out to you. Okay? I know you got them. So we all have stuck points. And so he's saying work this, work this out into that stuck point. Work it out into whatever, whatever you're struggling with. And, uh, and then Romans 1, it's a verse we already quoted, Romans 1, 16 and 17. We didn't quote 17, but let me requote this one. Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first the Jew and then the Greek. And then it goes on to explain what this gospel is. For it is a righteousness, so right standing. It is a righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, literally beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So from beginning to ending, it's all about faith. It's all about the gospel. So here's my point. Growth in Christ is never going beyond the gospel, but going deeper into the gospel. It's not that you just kind of enter in and, okay, now you're a believer. Now let's go much deeper. We're going to go deeper into something else. No, no, you're going deeper into the gospel. Every one of your problems, every one of my problems is a failure to go deeper into the gospel. There's aspects of the gospel that I yet really i am not living out into the specific areas of my, my life, whether it be my marriage, parenting, my single not life, my uh, work life, my finances, my emotional life. The gospel applies to all of that. It's A to Z. It's not A, B, C. It's A to Z in our lives. 
Let me say it again. Growth in Christ is never going beyond the gospel, but going deeper into the gospel. Now, we got to understand what the gospel is. And when we talk about salvation, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the salvation. Salvation, there's three big theological words, uh, many implications to these three big words. But the one is justification, the second one is sanctification, the third one is glorification. Sanctification has to do with where he sets us free from the penalty of sin, but it's more than that. He not only sets us free from the penalty of sin, but he invites us into his family, and we become his sons and daughters. I love that song we sang. We're his sons and daughters. That is, that's amazing. And so it's, that's, that's uh, justification. Sanctification is that where he is setting us free from the power of sin working in our lives. We're becoming more Christ-like. Glorification is what happens when you take your last breath on earth, first breath in heaven, and he sets you free from the, from the very presence of sin. So he sets us free from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the, the very presence of sin glorification. Look at your notes. Justification, that's your, first, that's your next fill in the blank there. Justification is being declared righteous in the sight of God as a once-for-all act of his grace. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, this is never ceases to amaze me when I read verses like this and I, and I look at the implications of it. As I think about it, I can't but smile. I mean, do you understand? You have peace with God. See, that's our big problem is that we're, we're disconnected from God. We're separated from God. And so Jesus came and, and built a bridge across the chasm of sin that separated us from God. And so now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified. It's an, it's an instantaneous act when we put our faith in Christ. Boom, you're there. You're part of his family. And it's, uh, it's amazing. That's justification, being declared righteous. I am in right standing with God. Not based on my performance, based on the performance of Jesus. So I have access into the throne room of God. I have the presence of the Holy Spirit. I have his love never to leave me or forsake me. Oh my goodness, that's... That's wild, that's crazy, that's amazing. That in itself, not based on your performance, based on his performance, it's a done deal. And uh, it's an instant status change, boom, just like that. You're in the family, you're part of his family, he loves you, never leave you or forsake you. That in itself is big. Here's the next one, sanctification is being restored to the image of God in which we were created as an ongoing work of his grace. So he set us free from the penalty of sin, justification, we're part of his family, and now sanctification, so he's done his work for us, now he's beginning to do his work in us, is being restored to the image of God in which we were created as the ongoing work of his grace. Verse 13 of our text, for it is God who works in you. So he did his work for you on the cross, bridge, the bridge across the chasm of sin, separating us from God, we're in his family. Now guess what, he's working in you, that's sanctification. God works in you both to will and to act, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Galatians 3.3, 3, Jesus, or Paul is getting down on this group of churches here and he says this, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the, in the flesh? In other words, okay, yeah, you understand that by, by the Spirit and the work of God, by your faith in Jesus, now you're part of his family, but now do you think you're going to be able to overcome the sin, the power of sin in your life by your own efforts, by trying harder? You're gonna th you think you're going to make 2015 the best year ever by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, trying harder? He says, that's ludicrous. You began in the Spirit, you're gonna continue on in the Spirit. It's God's work in you. 
giving you the desire and the ability to do what is pleasing to him. That's what he's saying. What is he ultimately up to? Galatians 4.19, Paul says, my little children, this is my heart for this, uh, for the DB, for all the DBers here. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's sanctification. We become more like Christ. Christians, Christ-like. That's what it means to be a Christian. So we begin to exemplify more and more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, regardless of what's going on. Now, if you fell asleep, wake up because the next point is really critical, okay? And it's going to take some thinking. You've got to use your brain a little bit. The next point, so we're still talking about the message, the grace of God. My sanctification isn't the basis for my justification, but it's my justification that is the basis for my sanctification. Huh? What did you just say? Okay, let me walk you through this here a little bit. You got to get this. My sanctification isn't the basis for my justification, but my justification is the basis for my sanctification. Verse 12 from our text, work out your salvation. You've been justified. You've been brought into the family of God. Now, out of that security, significance, and acceptance, begin to live out a life that is pleasing to God. That's what he's saying. That's the point. 2 Corinthians 5.17, those that are in Christ have become a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. What is he talking about there? Listen, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, do you have any idea what has transpired? An immediate status change. You have new potential. You have a new power. You have new privileges. You have new potential unlike you have ever had before. Now he's saying work out, work out of that resource, work out of all of the resources you have in him, out of that emotional and spiritual wealth that we have through Jesus Christ. I know, I know that it's not in the earlier uh, manuscripts, but, uh, but I still like it, and most theologians, in fact, all the theologians would say it's very consistent with Jesus. It's, it's the woman that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. How many are familiar with that story? You hear me say it from time to time. I love the story. Because in the story, here's the Pharisees that they're really dogging Jesus. They think he's weak on the law. They think he's wimpy on the law. So they bring this woman who's caught in the act of adultery in front of him. And what does Jesus say? He says, he is without sin. Do what? Throw the first stone. I love it. He balances the, the playing field. He upholds her dignity. Basically says, you see all these folks here that are pointing fingers at you? They're no different from you. All of you, all of you really have fallen short of the, of the glory of God. That's the point that he's making. But he doesn't stop there. As they one by one walk out in shame, he walks over to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And then he says something. I can't get over. He says something just so profound. And neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, notice the order. He doesn't say, and go and sin no more, and neither will I condemn you. He didn't say that. He said, neither do I condemn you. See, it, it tells us in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Do you guys not understand what that means? Never, not ever, never, not ever will he hold your sins, past, present, and future, against you. Never, not ever. That's, 
That's crazy. Do you understand the implications of being a son and a daughter of the creator of the universe, not based on your performance, based on the performance of Jesus? Oh, my goodness. I'm just overwhelmed just talking about it, just thinking about it. Go and sin no more. See, that's sanctification. Go and sin no more. That's sanctification. Justification? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Charles Wesley taught us to sing, and this is in the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Listen to this phrase. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He doesn't say he cancels the guilt of conquered sins. Conquer those sins and then I'll cancel the guilt of those sins. He didn't say that. No, it's first cancellation, then conquering. The only sins you're going to be able to overcome are the ones that you know that you're already forgiven of. He's already canceled those sins. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And, and so, so that's, that's the point. That's, that's the big idea. He doesn't love us because we're, we're lovable, but in order, in order to make us lovable. See, see every time that, that I'm unloving, and I know it's seldom, unless you talk to my wife, and it's always, okay. It's more than I should, I'm, there's no doubt about it. But every time I'm, I'm, un, un, I'm unloving and you're unloving, I have an attitude, I'm ticked off, I'm angry, I don't respond appropriately to the circumstances or people or the things of my life. It's because I'm not living in the love of God. I'm not living in the reality of how much I'm loved because I'll tell you what, that is an amazing resource in itself. I mean, you can have it as a concept in your head, but it's gotta be real to your heart. It's gotta be more than, yeah, Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. Big deal. No, that is a big deal. You just, you're just not living in the reality of it. It's not deep in your heart because if it was deep in your heart, I'm telling you, it'll change the way that you do life. See, see it's the justification that leads to the sanctification, not the sanctification that leads to the justification. Does that make sense? That's why you gotta, be, you gotta, you gotta understand the basic gospel message. And because of this, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, this will, this will cause me to respond a little bit di- differently when my wife comes and points a finger at me and says, hey dude, you've been really unloving. Instead of me being, what do you mean unloving? Well, you're not very loving yourself. You know, which would be the normal, typical response? It's kind of defensiveness. Because, we kind of, because we're, we're running on low. We've got a deficit. We're not going to do that. Here's, here's the response. Now that I am no longer guilty or condemned, I can fearlessly see my sins. I can admit my sins. I can also ruthlessly hate my sins and relentlessly repent of my sins. See, I can begin to deal with my stuff because I have all the acceptance, security, significance I'll ever need in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the questions I'll ask people from time to time, I love asking this question, are you a Christian or what is the gospel? Most people will define the gospel as kind of some form of moralism. And then when I ask them, are you a Christian? There's two responses that show me that, uh, that, that there's, there's, uh, their sanctification is the basis for their justification rather than the other way around and how it should be. And there's two responses. So if I came up to you and said, hey, are you a Christian? And you said to me, and you were somewhat defensive, of course I am. Why are you asking me that question? I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I put money in the box, get off my back. And, so, and maybe you wouldn't say that, but it's like, yeah, of course, look at my life. Well, see, what you're doing is you're basing it on your sanctification. 
You're basing your justification on your sanctification. Well, look at me. Look at this list of things that I'm doing. And that defensiveness comes out of the fact that, that it's not your sanctification that determines your justification. It's your justification that determines your sanctification. Here would be another wrong response that you, you are basing your, uh, your justification on your sanctification. And that is uh, that you would respond by saying, so I ask you, so are you a Christian? You're going... I'm trying. <laughs> There's no trying about it. Either you are or you aren't. I, it's, it's like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's like either you are or you aren't, okay? It's just like, hey, either you're a believer in Jesus Christ or you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in him? In, instant, status change. You're in. You're in his family. Live in the reality of that. Come on. Come on. That's, and so here's, here would be a normal response of someone who's basing their sanctification on their justification. So I come and ask you, are you a believer? And you'd go, oh, yeah, can you believe it? Me, a believer? I'd be the last one. But he loves me and he cares for me. I'm a child of God. I'm a friend of Christ. I'm a member of the family of God. I'm justified. He's working in my life. I'm sanctified. He's working. I, I know, I know. I don't, I don't look like it a lot of times. I don't respond like a Christian a lot of times. But I am a Christian because of what Jesus Christ has done. The Bible tells me so. I'm hanging on to that because I need a lot of help. See, that would be the normal response. Okay? <laughs> I mean, just delight. So it's not defensiveness or doubt. It's amazing delight. Oh, I'm a child of God. I need to think about that more because that's what's transforming my life. Okay. Okay. Enough said there. Now we move into the motive. So, so I mean, that's the message. I mean, I don't even think we have the message down. I mean, I don't think we're living in the reality of the message oftentimes. So the, the message is the grace of God. Here's the motive. So now we, gotta, we can start working on our heart. We're going to go deep into our heart, and Jonathan Edwards, great American theologian, wrote a book a number of years ago, really hard book to read, but it's called The Nature of True Virtue, and he makes a distinction between common virtue and true virtue. I've got it as point number four on the notes. Common virtue is motivated out of pride and or fear, which is self-centeredness, but true virtue is motivated out of a heart captivated by the sacrificial love of Christ, which is God-centeredness. So when you look at someone's moral behavior, and that's where you get the word virtue, so you see someone that's, uh, that's very generous with their money, it could, be, it could be out of fear and pride, or it could be out of a heart that's smitten by the beauty of Christ. You don't know that, because that would be deep within their heart. Now, maybe over time, you might be able to, be able to see that, see it. But, uh, and so common virtue is motivated out of pride. Pride is, hey, you're a good person if you give. You want to be a good person? You want to be on the winning team? Start giving. You can be like me. Because we're a winning team around here. You want to win? Hang out with me. That's called pride. That's not good motivation. And uh, how about this one? Here's the fear one. You're a bad person. You don't give. You're not like me. You're bad. Okay? See, that would be fear motivation. And yet, people do that stuff all the time. I mean, even with our kids, we do that kind of stuff. 
We use fear and pride. And that's very self-centered, but true virtue is motivated out of a heart captivated by the sacrificial love of Christ. It's very God-centered. Okay, let me, let me kind of walk through this a little bit more because I think this is an important one. No, there's no doubt about it. God's amazing grace produces radically generous people. When you begin to understand God's amazing grace, just, I, I, we just spent a, you know, a few minutes just talking about the gospel of grace and really understanding the message. And uh, man, the more you begin to live in the reality of that, you're gonna become radically generous. What do I mean by that? You're gonna begin to give of your time, your talent, your treasure to the work of God. And part of your treasure, we talked about it last week and I had some people uh, come up and ask me questions about this uh, as it relates to treasure. You're gonna give tithes. You're gonna make 10% of your income to the local church. You're gonna give over and above that through offerings, which would be like dare you to move or to missionary efforts. Many of you do that. And then also alms. Alms would be, so you got tithes, offerings, and alms. Alms is giving to the poor. So you might have someone in your small group that's struggling and everybody kind of rallies around them and helps them make ends meet for that month because they can't hardly make it. Maybe take them groceries or whatever. That would be that. That's, that's the idea. Now, so God's amazing grace produces radically generous people. So why would people be stingy? And it could be because of fear and or pride. We're stingy because of fear, because money has become my security and I, I need to keep stockpiling it in the bank. It's my security. Or it could be pride. Pride is my significance and I need to keep buying the things that I buy because I feel better about myself. Now, for me, money, and, and what I had to overcome was this idea of, of money being security. Mine was more about saving and my wife tended to be, money was more about significance. She was the spender, I was the saver. And both of us, uh, you know, from, from the get-go, we've always given, but part of our struggle as we were working through our money issues, we're working through our fear and pride as it related to money. Money was more than money for us. It, was, it, was, it had become a little bit of an identity as it does with all of us. And what's interesting is that in most churches, we try to get people to give through fear and pride. And what's fascinating about understanding motives, this common virtue versus true virtue, is that you can turn a stingy person into a generous person through fear and pride, using self-centeredness self -centeredness to motivate generosity and moral behavior. And if you really watch what we do in America today and in most churches, that's exactly what we do. This does not root out the fundamental cause of evil in the human heart, which is self-centeredness. I mean, you can actually get a stingy person to become a generous person, uh, hijacking their, uh, their self-centeredness by working on them, and, and the Bible goes to completely contrary to that. The Bible never uses fear or pride as a, as a means of motivation. It's always a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus Christ is. Common virtue comes from a restrained heart. Yeah, you can get people to do what you want them to do through fear and pride, but true virtue comes from a transformed heart. Now, verse 12, he said, this is the motive, fear and trembling. What's fear and trembling? Proverbs 9.10 talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. This is the idea that I think he's wanting us to get here. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out into the specific areas of your life and do it with fear and trembling. If I gave you a vase that was worth a million dollars and I told you, don't you dare scratch that vase or break that vase because it diminishes its value immediately when that happens. What would you do with that vase? You wouldn't throw it in the trunk of your car. You'd go, well, let me go get a big blanket and a bunch of pillows and I'm gonna grab a hold of that and walk with it very carefully. I do not wanna, and you would be very careful with a vase, not because the vase can hurt you, but you don't wanna hurt the vase. 
Fear and trembling doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that God can hurt you because there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but because you don't want to hurt God. You don't want to trample on his love and wisdom. When you understand all that he's done for you, oh my goodness, fear and trembling. God, I want to honor you in every area of my life, whether it be my marriage or finances or parenting or single night, singleness or job or money or how I do all of life. I want to put you on display. I want to honor you. I want people to see you. See, that's fear and trembling. You're motivated not out of fear or pride, but out of a heart smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ. I gave you a whole bunch of different illustrations here. Let me give you uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Paul is motivating them to give. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 are the most significant verses in the New Testament for grace giving. And he doesn't uh, work on, on their fear and pride to get them to be generous. Uh, he could, and in fact, he even says, hey, I could command you, I'm Apostle Paul, I could command you to give. Nor does he hold up pictures of malnutrition kids and say, you've got money, they don't have any, it's obvious, okay? Start forking it over, you wicked and evil people. I mean, he doesn't do that. In the midst of these two chapters, he gives us the most powerful definition of grace that I've ever come across. And he says, this is what he's appealing to. He says, hey, God wants you to be, you know, to, to also be great in this generosity of, of giving and being a generous person. Oh, and by the way, this is what should motivate it. For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. That's 2 Corinthians 8 9. He doesn't stop there. You go to the next chapter, and he's still working on their heart, and he says this. He says, don't give grudgingly or under compulsion, fear of pride, because God loves what kind of a giver? Cheerful. Cheerful. Hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> that almost kind of sounded wicked, though, didn't it? Like, that dude's messed up. No, that's, that's the idea. I can't believe it. I get another opportunity to give to God. Woo! Yeah, that's what he's talking about. And then he says something really significant after that. He goes from, don't give grudgingly or under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Your life will stop being just a reservoir. It'll be a river of God's blessings. And you go, wow, that's a way to live. There's other examples. I won't give them to you. He talks about marriage using uh, that heart motivation in marriage. Ephesians 5.25, racism, Galatians 2.14, and then 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 15, it just talks about letting the love of Christ constrain you, drive you, push you. Now, number five, so the gospel destroys pride with truth and fear with love. So as we work on our hearts, this is what's happening in our hearts. So here's the truth, I am so sinful, Jesus had to die for me, so it's unbelievably indispensable. There was no other way that we could be brought to the Father except through this, so the truth rids me of pride, and then love, here's the love, Jesus loved me so much he wanted to die for me, that's indescribable that the God of the galaxies would come and, and die for me. The text that we're reading from, 12 and 13, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, the context 
of our text is the truth and love of Christ rescuing us from peril. Romans 5, 8 through 11, he's, he's, he's saying, he's making this contrast. He's saying, now if God died for you, if Jesus died for you while you were a sinner, just think of how much more he's gonna give to you and bless you now that you're his kids. That's, that's the rationale that he's giving us in Romans 5, 8 through 11. So let me go back to this idea. Why do we have a tough time giving? Because of fear, oftentimes fear of not having enough to save because money has become our security because we don't realize how loved we are by the Lord of the universe. So we need to have that love go deeper into our heart. Why do we not give? Pride. Pride out of not having enough to spend on our significance because we don't realize that all the clothes and the cash and the castles and the cars can't give to us the significance that only the creator of the universe can give to us. I mean, he died for us. That's, that's pretty significant. Okay, so, so the message is grace, his work for us and then in us. The motive is love, not fear, pride, love. The mark is the glory of God. Now now we're gonna dive just a tad deeper here because uh, idolatry is one of our biggest issues. Idols compete for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections and so at the root of all of our sins is some form of idolatry Everybody has something deep in their heart that they are saying, I can't live without you. Sounds like a good song title, huh? I can't live without you. (sighs) Barry Manilow? Manilow? That's gross. Okay, I'm just, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, but by the way, we all, have, we all struggle with these idols, and we're talking really about living for God's glory. That's what this is. Now, I put on there Exodus 23, and it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And what it's saying, and we've taught this before, that when you look at the Ten Commandments, we violate nine through ten in direct proportion to how we've already violated the first one, having other gods. And this is in the context of uh, Exodus 20. You know what precedes Exodus 20? Exodus 19. Well, that's pretty ingenious. No, I'm talking about the topic. The topic is covenant love. He says, do you have any idea how much I love you? Oh, and by the way, you want to respond to my love? This is how you respond. Here's the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are in. So he's saying, hey, have no other gods before me. By the way, I'm, I'm madly in love with you. I want you to have your undivided attention, and I want you to love me, and I want you to live for me. But we tend to not do that. I love uh, reading First John. If you read the five chapters there, you read, and he's talking about uh, relationship with God, relationship with people, relationship with God, relationship with people, fellowship with God, fellowship with people. It goes throughout the book. And then all of a sudden, he ends the book by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. What? Where did he get that? He just pulled that out of the sky? Or did he? He just hit the root of all of our problems when it comes to our relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship with God, relationship with one another. The bottom line is idolatry, making anything more important than God in our life. We take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing in our life. There's a lot of good things in our life, but we don't turn them into ultimate things, into God things, because that's what, where we get into trouble. It's about worship. Now, how do you identify your idols? And I've shared with you many of my idols. 
How many would like to hear more about Nancy's idols? My wife's, okay. I, I'm for it. Oh, we don't have enough time to even talk about all of her idols. There's so many of them. I'm kidding. I think I have more than her. But uh, let's talk about your idols. How do you discover your idols? You have idols. You have those things that if you were to lose them, your life would just be devastated. You would be wiped out. You can't live without those things. They're good things that have become ultimate things in your life. That's the biggest struggle in our lives. We all have these things in our lives. And so oftentimes what I look for is I, I, I look for what dominates my thoughts, what stirs my deepest emotions, what moves me to action. But, but let's just focus on just the emotional part of this. I follow the inordinate emotions and desires back to the source. So, so let me kind of walk you through kind of some steps. So if a good thing, if a good thing in your life is threatened, you're going to worry. That's normal. So if you have a good thing and it's threatened, whatever it might be, think about the many good things, and if it's threatened, you're going to worry. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're not just going to worry. You're going to be paralyzed. You're going to fall apart. That's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. If a good thing in your life is blocked by somebody, you're going to get mad. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're not just going to get mad. You're going to get, you're going to be bitter and you're going to rage. If a good thing in your life is lost, you're going to be very sad. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're not just going to be sad. You're ready to end your life. You, you see how idols affect our emotional well-being? Yeah, when your emotions are going off the chart, you've got to follow it back to what's, what's your idol. Uh, what's most important to you? That takes you to number seven. When you see your heart turning toward idols, you must stop your heart and look at Jesus giving you the very thing your heart wants from the idol. That's why it says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23. Quick, quick illustration, and then I got one more point, and then I've got a couple testimonies up on the big screen I'm gonna show you. But I mean, this, I, I've seen this same scenario work out time and time again, not only in my life, but in other people's lives. You've seen people going through identical circumstances with two different responses. One becomes bitter, one becomes better. Let's just say you're in your small group or you, uh, you have some friends and there's two women, two women both married to husbands who are poor fathers, both of whom have teenage sons who are getting into trouble in school and with the law. Both, both women are angry at their husbands they should be. Both are counseled, among other things, about the problem of unresolved bitterness and the importance of forgiveness. Both agree to seek to forgive their husbands. However, the woman who has the worst husband and who is uh, the least spiritually mature is able to forgive, and the other woman is not. And that's baffling for you. You're going... What's wrong with this? This is puzzling for months until in conversation or in the small group, the unforgiving woman blurts out and says, well, if my son crashes and burns, then my whole life will have been a failure. Bingo. You just discovered that she has centered her life on her son's success and happiness, and that's why she couldn't forgive her husband. 
I mean, and I've seen that same scenario work its way out. You, you follow it back to the, the root problem. That emotional response is because there's something attached to that. There's, there's an idol attached to that. I've seen that work in loss of jobs, divorce, battling disease, cancer, any number of things. And so why spiritual disciplines? So a, a growing Christian is committed to the disciplines because we're trying to work all of this stuff I just talked about down deep into our heart. This is the means. Spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are meant to make Christ more beautiful to our imagination, more attractive to our heart than our idols. Idols can't be removed, only replaced. Augustine said the key to life change is not the acts of the will, but loves of the heart. And we know here at Desert Breeze, life change happens best in small groups. Watch these videos, or this video, these people. We are Dave and Denise Hope, and we've been married four years. Yes. We were both married to other people. We were uh, both went through divorces, bankruptcy, addiction problems, and uh, we met each other online back around 2008. Yeah, we had no intention of getting married, and um, mm -hmm. and we it was just another thing that uh, you know we we had a set direction we were going to go in our life, mm -hmm. and we knew we were right. And over time, we were exposed to God's word and teaching and, and the love of people in our group. And it, it, it was pointed out, you know, that or we finally realized this is an area that, that we're not willing to give up to God. Mm -hmm. You know, we're trying to do it our way and we're trying to, uh, trying to yeah. do what we want. Things that worked so well in the past yeah. to do it our way. Yeah. My name is Crystal and this is my sister. My name is Elena. It was definitely after I started attending Desert Breeze that I realized that I, I really wasn't loving people the way I should. I was kind of separating myself because I was a, afraid of loving them. And then after coming to Desert Breeze, um, Pastor Ray was talking about how we need to have relationships with, the, relationships with others in order to have relationships with God. When I first realized that I was starting to connect with people was after the uh, women's retreat, the Desert Breeze women's retreat. I really didn't want to go because honestly, a weekend of what I considered emotional women did not sound like a fun time for me. But then I just kept thinking about it, thinking about it. My sister and my mom kept telling me, you should go. We're not going to force you, but you should go. And so I finally went and I had a blast. I finally got to see women, strong women, strong leaders, and I had so much fun with them. And it was after that that I realized that how much I needed um, interaction with people and to have relationships with people and to really to strengthen my relationship with God. We started coming to church and just through, I think, through a constant exposure to raised teaching and being exposed to the Bible and to Jesus, um, we realized our need for him. We realized that we sinners, that we were lost without him, and we, we didn't want that. We wanted him. I think when it really took off is when we began to go to the game of life. We took that class because others of our friends have taken it, and that's when we really noticed that we started to get involved. We went to the connection party, and we joined a small group, and have been going to the same small group for the past five years, 
and just getting together with people that were our friends and we didn't know each other because it was a brand new group. But once we all started talking and sharing different experiences like cancer and deaths in the family and just different family issues, we all became so close. Yeah, really have become a family. Getting connected in a small group is so critical to uh, developing your relationship with Christ because he had a small group. <laughs> he was very much a part of a small group and likes getting personal with people and you have to do that. Small groups are pe- for people like me <laughs> who are afraid to be in large groups and who cannot really connect. It's a lot easier when you're in a smaller group and it's easier to talk to a lot less people and and you just really have a little more intimate time with people and get to get to know them from in that little bit of a safety zone. My attitude, I, I put up a wall. I didn't want to get involved in a small group. And I think when you let the wall down and really want to connect with people, the rewards um, are so very much worth it. We keep learning that the things that God calls us to are for our good and and truly for our good. They they end up being blessings. I think we really feel him in our life too, because so many times we've said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to get married. We don't have time for a small group. We don't have time for this or that. And then we feel it in our heart that we really want to do it. And you crave the time with other Christians. We're still, we're still stretched a lot of times, Mm -hmm. but I think we're, I think we're learning that, that that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. It's a comfortable stretch. Yeah. I would consider a uh, growing Christian someone who's constantly just seeking Christ and challenging themselves in their faith. We dare you to make a connection. I dare you. I dare you. (laughs) (laughs) We dare you. (laughs) Jesus is the hero of our lives because he's he's our he's our savior. I mean, he's our only opportunity to get God. We have come to realize that we want God, mm-hmm. and we can't get to Him on our own, and we are lost without Jesus. Yeah. We dare you to go deeper. We, we dare, dare you. you. Give him a hand. It's good. Good stuff. Really good stuff. So, what's your next step? What's your next step? Last weekend, we talked about commitment to Christ and to a church family. This weekend, it's really a commitment to the disciplines necessary for spiritual growth, and that's being small groups. Let's pray. God, your word tells us, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, our theme verse here, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is fully devoted to you. So may your power be unleashed in us as we are more fully devoted to you, specifically in this area of spiritual disciplines, Bible study, prayer, small groups, ministry teams, outreach, so that we can be more and more transformed by your amazing grace, motivated by your sacrificial love. We also pray that you would unleash your power in us to raise the money we need to build our church home to its fullest capacity to better reach seekers and build believers to full devotion to Christ through our greater proclamation, demonstration of this liberating, life-liberating and soul-satisfying gospel message for your glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said...
Amen. God bless you.